0: Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Today's guest is Haley Altman. She's a corporate attorney, founder, and she's a friend to many of us in the legal technology innovation space. Haley had a fascinating career where she moved from attorney for buyers and sellers to founding and selling her own company, and eventually landing on the buy side with Letera, a name that should be familiar to you from other podcast episodes. She began her career in big law, first as an associate and then partner, moving into entrepreneurship as a founder of Doxley Inc., which was acquired by Letera. There she took on the role of global head of corporate development and eventually led 10 acquisitions in a time span of less than two years. Most recently, Haley has shifted to a strategic advisor consulting role at Laterra, where she continues to support the leadership team and their M&A and product strategy. In our conversation, we talked about why she jumped from equity partner to founder and the support she got from her firm and adventure studio, High Alpha. I found that fascinating. We also talked about why she turned her focus to the talent side of the legal industry and how she's addressing burnout and career progression, both for herself and for others in the career. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation as much as I did. Haley, thank you for joining. I really appreciate you making the time. I have to start. We've overlapped in a small town called Greencastle, Indiana, where I grew up and you went to school at DePauw, and I not to play too much inside baseball, but uh, how did you enjoy your stint in my hometown?
1: I have a science background. So I was actually a science research fellow. I started out doing cancer research when I was in high school. And so I wanted to go to a school where I could both swim because I'd been competitive swimming for a long time. And I wanted to kind of get like deeper into science. And they had this amazing program called Science Research Fellows, where you kind of do all this different research. So I actually lived in Green Castle for an entire summer after my freshman year.
0: Oh, I'm so sorry.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I like, I lived in town. And like, I remember having, you know, some of my friends from first year that also were, you know, kind of townies from from the lived in Green Castle. (laughs) And They like took us to some of the like haunted bridges, and it was like it was such an entertaining experience. But I, I loved Green. I enjoyed it. I mean, it was great for college because then you're focused on college. Like you're like that was it. That, that was really. Cool. There's
0: not a lot of distractions in that. <laughs> like,
1: the China buffet was great. There was a like, Walmart. That was like you know if you, You know, there's a few things. The duck.
0: <laughs> it's a little sad when you, when the description of one of the good things about your hometown is that there's a Walmart. <laughs> <laughs> So you, you had a science background and you went to DePauw for science. What caused you to go to law school?
1: So one of the other things that DePa did was they had a thing called a winter internship. And so you take the month of January and you would be able to go places. A lot of people travel the world, but I always swam. So I was always on campus. And so by junior year, though, I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to the Olympics. I can finally give up on that dream. So, Oh, that's sad. I know, I know. Um, but I was like, I'm prepared to let that one set sail. And so I realized by junior year that I actually had almost finished a political science major at the same time I was doing my chemistry major. So I'm actually a double major.
0: Those two don't normally go together, even though they both have science in the name. (laughs)
1: They do not. They're not the norm. But I had just, you know, I was on a chemistry major background because I was going to go to medical school. But I just loved the political science classes. I loved the kind of thought behind it, how everything came together. So they suggested that I do a political science internship. So they got me placed at the Health and Hospital Association in Indianapolis doing kind of public policy lobbying type work. And so I only got to do it for a month. And I was like, this is amazing. Like working in a research lab, I, I It was getting to the point where I realized I wasn't sure I wanted to go to medical school. But working in a research lab, I was like, that sounds terrible. It's a lot of fail. It's like you have to be able to deal with repeat failure over and over and over and over.
0: It is the point of the research, isn't it?
1: Nope, not really wanting to do that forever and ever. So I was like, well, you could actually help a lot of people by working on the policy that impacts how people live. And then they were working on making it so that you could have access to more multilingual care within hospitals was the legislation I was working on. So between college and law school, I actually took a year off to make the decision law school, medical school. So I did a lobbying internship with Eli Lilly out of, also out of Indianapolis. And so I was lobbied on their behalf. And then it was like, Oh wow, like if you could actually help do these different things, like an entire, you know, kind of drug can be created. And so. That's what actually pushed me to go into law school and to make that kind of transition. It was that idea of like wanting to help people with like, you know, medicine or science and then kind of transitioning that into, well, if I could actually help the companies that are going to work in this area, raise capital and bring their ideas to market, like I could help multiple of those companies help many people. And so it's that kind of concept of one to many that I was like, well, that gets me excited. So that that was the transition into law. Ah,
0: and you kept your career going and you went into practice with a couple of great law firms, becoming a partner at Ice Miller. And then you make another turn by starting Doxley. Before we talk a little bit about Doxley and what it did, how do you go about making that leap? Because it's it's a leap, <laughs> right? There's a leap of faith involved as you go into the unknown. It had to be a little scary, even if you got confidence in the idea.
1: Oh, Terrifying. Yeah. So, I mean, I would worked on the idea while I was an associate when I made partner, when I made income partner, because we are two tier partnership tracks. So when I made income partner, I told the managing partner who used to be the head of the corporate group that I wanted to work on this idea. And I, I took a risk there telling him that I wanted to do this. And he's like, okay, you know, I had full faith that like my, like, hours weren't going to impact. But so he was helping a former client. Scott Dorsey created Exact Target. It sold to Salesforce for $2.1 billion. He wanted to create a venture studio. So instead of becoming a CEO and taking another company from start to exit again, he wanted to kind of build the next generation of companies and take all the lessons learned And like kind of help people get like a head start in terms of what they needed to like build a business. So they were, Ice Miller was helping form High Alpha and they were in the process they had to create, it was like two funds, an operating company. And so, so many signatures and so many people of information. So they decided they were thinking they might do something illegal. So they asked Steve and Steve, remembered that I had told him about my idea. And so he put us in contact. And for a while, it seemed like our ideas were a little bit tangential. And then they did more research and they're like, oh, okay, let's actually talk more. So I did a presentation for the four general partners of High Alpha on like why I thought that they should build something illegal and this is what I would build and everything I was calling it the closing room at that time. So I won a a spot in their sprint week. So I was the first outside idea that wasn't their own idea. So I competed against their three ideas, which was intimidating and a little scary. And so Christian Anderson, one of the partners, was the leader of my team. And so we built a business plan of how will we take this company, which we are then calling Doxley, and make it into a business. And you know, during the sprint week process, I got a couple of law firms to sign up to paid pilots. We flashed the letters of intent on the screen and everyone in the room was like, you need a lawyer. Oh, shoot. Uh, and they're like, she did probably <laughs> draft those. And I was like, sure did. Sure did. You know, so I won Sprint Week, but I actually turned them down on being CEO because I just made equity partners. So I went from income partner to equity partner in one year. I was like so proud of that and wanting to continue on with like, clients. i had a really good book of business.
0: Completely understandable. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But then for the next half a month, I did both. I worked on both. And I was just like, every day, it's all I thought about. And so I came back to them and I think they made one comment. They're like, we kind of feel like the CEO has to be a lawyer. And I was like, oh, well, it's not going to be a different lawyer. <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> I think, you know, for months of agonizing and making this decision, how am I going to do this and how we're going to do it? I literally left the meeting, called my husband on my like six minute drive home and was like, I'm resigning tomorrow. And I did. It was just in that moment, I knew that I wanted to take this forward. I knew it would be a dramatic, like, kind of lifestyle change in terms of equity partner salary versus, you know, being in a startup. But I did know I had extra backing. So they provided like CFO services to start, HR stuff to start. So I had some of the infrastructure of the company built out. And so I think that helped me, like, get over some of the, like, fear, you know, the risk, like, how we always are trying to be risk adverse in the law firm side. And then I just decided that at the end of the day, I worked with a lot of startups and VCs and what better credibility for representing them in the future if I did a startup. So worst case scenario, Epic fail startup, but I've now experienced what every one of my clients is going through and the stress they're under. And I was like, at the end of the day, it'll make me better at the job that I do know I know how to do. And so I knew Ice Miller was like, why don't you do it for a year? If you like it, stay with it. If you don't, come back. And so at the end of the day, it was like, okay, it's a huge, big risk, but...
0: But it's mitigated a little bit. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an amazing reaction by Ice Miller and kudos, kudos to them. Not every firm would have had that both initial reaction and then hooking you up and then giving you the option to come back. That's great.
1: Yeah, it was actually the hardest reason to leave because I truly loved working there. I loved the people I worked with. I loved the team. I loved what they did for their clients. And so that made it hard, but it also made it like extra, you know, it made it special. And they were one of our first customers. And I mean, to be working with such a, a really supportive group of people is great.
0: You say in your practice, you represented startups and I presume both at early stage and, and, and later stage companies. What lessons did you learn from working with them in terms of mistakes to avoid or things to do right that informed your role as CEO in your own company? Because there had to be something you learned.
1: Yeah. Oh, no. And so it's interesting because there's so much I can tell you that I didn't know. And I'm happy to talk because it's interesting how we practice and how we work is so different from how you have to work in a company. And there's so many lessons. But I will say because I worked with a lot of startups and I also represented a number of VCs. So I heard countless pitches countless pitches and listen to VCs debate like what companies they were going to fund and things like that. And so I had a real sense of like, how do you tell the story of your business? And I think a lot of people, you know, they're like, I have this great idea. And that's it. And you're going to want to invest in it. You're going to want to buy it. And that's it because it's an important thing. And I know what I'm doing. And I realized that there's more to this art of like storytelling. And it it applies when you're raising capital, when you're trying to hire people, when you're selling to customers and when you're helping customers implement your system. And the story has an overarching theme that applies to everyone, but the audience is different. So the message and what they need is different. So I went in to raising capital with like a totally different perspective than most people who are raising capital for the first time. So we raised $2.3 in less than 30 days, no product. At a valuation, that was probably too high.
0: <laughs> that's, that's a good amount of money for a company with no product.
1: No, nope, no product yet. Hadn't launched, hadn't finished it. And but we told the story and we told it. And for VCs, the pain point was clear how many investments have you made where you guys are trying to figure out how we're closing this deal? Where are all the signatures? There's the frustration in it. So we played for the VCs and things like that into like, what were their pain points? And so we carried that into the sales process. And we made a couple of mistakes on the sales side of trying to hire salespeople instead of doing founder led sales as heavily at first, because there is a lot about the story that needs to resonate. You need to know who the buyers are and how to tell it. So I think the ability, because I listened to so many startup stories, so many investors' responses, like I realized which companies were starting to be successful in terms of how they crafted that pitch. And so I think also a big understanding of the customer. So being able to break down processes and be able to tell the product team, like we made every single Doxley hire, I wanted to say in part of starting a company, you have to prove the ROI. So I took the signature, uh, creating a signature packet, and I wanted to test it out. And we had law firms test it out and tell us, but I wanted my team to understand what people went through. So I made them do it themselves. So every person when they started at Doxley had to do the task of creating a set of signature packets for a deal. They had to put them together. They had the names and everything. They had to print them. They had to packet them. They had to rescan them. They had to experience what the actual process was that an attorney would go through. So when they were starting to build the product, didn't matter or, or do customer support or sales, whatever it was, they had to understand at least some part of the pain process that we were trying to solve. And so I think having that understanding of the industry, I think gave me more empathy with our customers in terms of what support times we were trying, needed to offer. And so I think that that kind of, and then I also understood the finance side of it. So like what I worked on the Ice Miller Finance Committee. So I understood how we were billing for things and where we were trying to collect more and where we were losing revenue. And so I think when you can put that experience of understanding the actual doers, but also the finance side of it, it can help you build more of a product kind of roadmap and value story.
0: And so you you ran Doxley for three years and by the end actually had a product. So that was cool. And you sold it to Latera. What led you to that decision? Because you were having great success and there's always a path for an entrepreneur and a founder to continue to build out something on your own. There's always the exit strategy. And what were the variables that went into your, your own thinking that led you to sell, sell to litera?
1: Yeah. So, you know, when you get to different points in your kind of journey as a startup, there's always these different inflection points where you can make different decisions, where you can go down the pathway of like we were about to go down the pathway of a series A. And when you're making that big kind of point where you're going to raise that bigger round of capital, which changes the cap table structure and things like that, you can continue down that path or you can look at exits. And before we even officially started on the series A path, we'd gotten inbound interest from acquirers. And so we got the first one and it was through, you know, through connections. And so one of the things I think that part of what being a lawyer taught me is, you know, it's hard to be the lawyer that goes into a conference and is like trying to sell to startups because everyone's like, I don't want to talk to you, I want to talk to the investors. Like you stay over there. So you have to learn how to like meet and network with people when you don't need anything from them. So I spent a lot of time in Doxley's time getting to know the whole market, getting to know the people in the market and get to meet them, not to talk about necessarily partnership because I knew my business was small compared there. So you have to partnership has to have value on both sides of it. But by going and meeting all these people, when the first offer came in or the first interest of an offer came in, I called the other people and said, Hey, I've always told you if something ever comes in, I'll let you know. So I did that and then we had three offers. And then we actually had an investor that was on our platform using that was using the system call us to ask us to lead the Series A. So they used the platform, loved it, wanted to invest. So we have this side, and then we've got three different groups that are looking to potentially acquire us. And we were like, Honestly, when you have that many people that are interested, you kind of are like, maybe this is a moment in the market where we can really do something special, but even despite the early stage that we were. And so we decided that, you know, all of the offers were strategic. They were all really good and it was compelling. And so when it's compelling, you're like, all right, we got to sit down and think about it. And, you know, I think for us, it was a it was a good moment. And so then basically the board said, look, all right, let's see what the offers are. Let's see if they get to a number that we think we are comfortable with or we'll go the series A path. And then we got to the point where we're like, yeah, the numbers are good. The numbers are really good. They look good. And so they said to me, like, you know, at the end of the day, if the numbers are equal, then you make the decision on who you sell to, which is a really <laughs> amazing, but stressful place to be in.
0: I can imagine.
1: <laughs> because you're sitting there and you're thinking now, so we got down to two. And so we got down to two and the offers were equal. One had a faster timeline, but the timeline was concerned was more mine. I had this weird vision that if I, we could close the deal fast enough, I would get to announce it when I spoke at the Make Law Better conference. And so one was a longer timeline, one was shorter, but I was like, I'm not going to make a decision based solely on
0: that. It <laughs> does seem a bit ephemeral.
1: <laughs> yeah. But I was like, so that was like kind of about, you know, one of those funny things, but you no, know, at the end of the day, when I met the Lateran HG team, it was one of those things like, you know, there's funny. I met the HG group first and I. I just, you know, I've worked with a lot of PE firms through practice. I've represented them. I've worked with them on deals. And I'd never met a PE fund that understood an industry as deeply as I felt HG did. And so then you combine that with Avanish, who is like a great CEO who was a lawyer who got it. He presented a PowerPoint to me in one of our first meetings during diligence. This is after I d- decided to sell, but we were on the same page. And I, I liked the leadership style that he talked about and the Vantage style that they were using at Latera. And I was like, okay, it just felt right. So I, I made the decision, signed the LOI, was going to go with Latera. And then in one of our first diligent sessions, he pulled up a PowerPoint and I was looking at it and it had every one of the thoughts that were kind of in my head of where I was taking this. And I had to think as to whether or not I sent him that presentation and he was just showing it back to me. And then I realized like, he created it. So, like our thoughts were really aligned. And so, this, in that moment, you're like, okay, this was the right decision. This is the right place. They've got a P fund backer that like gets it and that gets the industry. And like, that's a powerful combination. So, that's how we ended up at Latera. So, it was a cool circumstance.
0: Yeah. No, it sounds like an amazing confluence of events. And I take it from your description, you've never sort of looked back and go, oh, geez, if we'd only gone the series A route.
1: No, I, I think it, you could always go back and think that, but at the end of the day, it was a great outcome for our investors. Like I wanted a great outcome for investors, our customers and for our people. And 100% of our employees worked at Latera on the one-year anniversary. And everyone that's left has gone on to do bigger titles and things like that. And I think that's the best thing you can say as someone that's led a company is that your people continue to achieve and move on to amazing things. And so no looking back.
0: So talk to me a little bit about You headed the corporate development for Latera before your most recent move. And we'll talk about the recent move here in a minute. But what was the strategy of Latera and how did Doxley fit into it?
1: Yeah. So, you know, Latera was really all about how do we take a document from first draft to final delivery? And they brought together this best in class set of tools to kind of take documents through that whole process. But at the end of the day, a document does not operate in isolation. Usually it is part of a set of things that make up a transaction or make up a case. And so if you want to work on the documents and you want to put the tools that can help you draft the documents, it's good to do that in the larger context of a deal. So from a Doxley perspective, we were taking the whole checklist. What are the document set that makes up this transaction and allowing people to see what all needs to be done, who needs to do it? who has the pen on any version and what version are we working from? Like how many times I've been as an attorney we're like what, like you're like, the your client's calling you about a point and you're like, oh, that's not even the right version. We dealt with that. Like that was two versions ago. We got to get the client the right version. We got to make sure we're all on the same page. And so when you're doing all these like kind of document putting everything together, it makes sense to be able to then like kind of manage the transactions. If you're managing the documents and what goes into the documents, then you can manage them in the context of a whole larger deal. And so it starts to kind of put the pieces together of, of taking these kind of, it's the building blocks of starting to put together these workflows that we've been expanding on at Latera over the years.
0: And the company has been on quite the acquisition binge, uh, Clocktimizer, Kira, mm-hmm. Doxley, among others. It must have been an interesting experience. I take it you were both finding the investments and leading the development of them at uh, Latera. What was that experience like?
1: Yeah. So moving into corporate development was a, it's kind of an interesting full circle moment. I've been an attorneys for buyers and sellers. I've sold my company and now I got to be on the buy side of it. And so we really worked closely with, you know, the executive team in HG to really think about like, okay, what are our products need? Like what are attorneys doing? What are like kind of workflows that start to like kind of build on what we're doing? And so you know, we've been really kind of trying to be thoughtful. I know it's like, you know, people are like, oh, there's a lot. But it's like, it's all about like, kind of looking at these more complicated workflows. So if you think about, you know, we started with the document, but the document's part of a deal. But a deal doesn't start with the LOI. The deal starts when you win the relationship with the client. So what is all that representative work? I I remember when I was at Miller one year, we were talking about, okay, we're putting together an RFP to win the deal to be, I think we were going to be sell-side counsel for this deal. And we needed to say how many deals we did the year before. And when we looked at our own little internal Excel tracking sheet, we'd only had like 20 deals in the sheet. And that would have been a massive drop from what we'd done before. So Marita, who was like kind of the business development for the corporate group, like kept sending emails. She finally had to call every single corporate partner and corporate associate to ask them for their deal count and match it against the time entry system. And it was like,
0: God, that sounds familiar. I've heard that story before.
1: Yeah. It was like 68 or something like that. It's a massive difference when you're going out, but like that's a completely inefficient process, but we don't get to work on the deal. We don't get to do the documents. We don't get to draft document one. We definitely don't get to run the deal if we haven't won it. And so, you know, we kind of took a step back and said, look, like we can actually, you know, look at foundation and how like the intelligence around a firm, what have we done in matters. So each of the things we've done is like a building block or kind of ties into the direction that we want to go in terms of solving problems. So if you know what a representative matter is, you can find the representative document set. And then you can actually start the deal. And then if you know what a representative matter is, you can look at Clocktimizer and you can look and see, okay, what are the type of associates that we need to staff on this deal? What is the budget we should, how should we price this? And so like you think about that, that's clocktimizer, that's Micron in terms of like staffing and like, you know, what skills do we need to develop in people? So we need to staff this type of associate, they need this type of work, you know, so you can start to see how like if you are looking from the start of a matter, you can then move into some of the staffing. You can move into how do we price and budget it? What documents do I want to use and how do I anonymize those documents? So I can make them relevant. You know, and then Kira is, you know, in the AI space. So it's again, fits into that. So when we look at each of these things, we're really looking at how do we make these workflows and data streams more valuable as information passes from one system to another because they really are integrated. So it really was taking a step back and thinking about how do people work? Like, what do they do? What information do they need? When do they need it? And like, how can we bring the systems together to provide it in a more seamless way for them?
0: You've obviously spent a lot of time over the years in in the tech world, in particularly legal tech world. What do you see on the horizon? And obviously, you've been working a lot of automated workflows and the AI, you said through Kira, in terms of extraction technologies, et cetera. What is it that's on the horizon that gets you excited about legal tech? What's next?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I think one of the things and it it ties into some of the stuff about the role I'm in now, but like, I think we're seeing a huge impact in the talent side of the business in terms of dissatisfaction, burnout, people leaving, not just switching firms, but leaving the industry entirely. And that's a huge amount of knowledge that like leaves when people leave a firm a huge financial impact and like having an attrition rate last year of 26. And I know when it with any sort of slowdown, like, you know, the attrition rate isn't as like impactful or the attrition starts to slow a little bit as well. But I think the dissatisfaction and burnout rate being so high is concerning. And so I think understanding the talent pool, finding ways to figure out how to help people understand career progression, giving them access to the type of work that's going to be challenging and that's going to keep them excited about the space. So I think the talent side is an area where, you know, there's been a couple of tech players in that space, but there's so much like room to like kind of really grow and understand how do we better retain and grow talent within our firms? How do we better capture the knowledge so that when people do leave, we have better access to it so that we can kind of keep the business growing? So I think the talent side is a big place where there's opportunity for growth in terms of really kind of figuring out that can have a meaningful like revenue impact to a firm because it is so costly when attrition happens. And then I think just more ways to kind of aggregate and display data. There's so much actionable data that firms have that they can't use in terms of even just more around firm intelligence and business intelligence that I think like people are looking for. Like The information is there. How do I surface it? And so I think you'll continue to see a different variety of tools that will come together to try to kind of give people more. I almost want to say it's more proactive. We have a lot of tools that tell us things of like what went wrong, like, oh, we're super upside down on this client. Our realization rate is really low in this area, but like it's all past information. But how can we be more proactive of monitoring things so we don't get upside down? Um, we used to get upside down on like startup clients and, you know, anyone that's worked in the venture side.
0: You know, you get upside down on occasion.
1: You get upside down on litigation. Like, you, can, you know, there's all sorts of things where like if we could find tools, I think that will be the interesting thing. Can we find ways to be more proactive and address situations up front?
0: That's fascinating. And I I agree with you, particularly on the data front, extracting the information, particularly from law firms or from corporate legal departments. If you can do it and can rely on the accuracy of the data and and how clean it is, you can draw some powerful insights that allow you to avoid some of these things. But let's stick on the talent side, because you recently have been very candid about a change in your role at Latera. Uh, I don't want to call it a step back, call it into a different role of strategic advisor to help find your own balance in life. Talk to us a little bit about that. And also you posted on LinkedIn and you've talked to Artificial Lawyer and things about this. What's the reaction of lawyers been to your, your candid description of what you're doing and why?
1: Yeah. No, it's been really great. I mean, I think one of the things is like for most of the people that have gotten to know me through doing this, like the big joke was like, I I managed to somehow work 29 hours in a day. Like I would be talking to CEOs and he'd be like, I get emails from you literally like any time of night. Like it's amazing. Do you sleep? And I'm like, you hear that enough. And you're like, oh yeah, no, I'm, I just, you know, I like to work a lot. And you realize like, oh man, I really am like working like all the time. Like, you no, when Latera is like, Haley, you have to take a vacation, not need to have to like, you're just working like over, you know, so, you know, it's like, I get really passionate. Like, that's the thing. I really enjoy what we're doing at LaTera. I really am passionate about like what we're doing, how we're trying to grow the business, how we want to solve problems for lawyers. So it's easy to just jump into things and continue going and being like, okay, like let's, what are we going to do next? And let's keep going. And so I think for myself, I was just like, you know, at this point, I'm like, we've done done 10 acquisitions. We've done a recap. I had a startup. I sold it. I made partner across that time have had probably less than like 50, vacation days over 60 years, 16 years. So I was like,
0: it feels like 60 years
1: (laughs) feel like that a little bit. It all went real fast, but it was. So I think it's just like, you know, one of those points where you're like, I want to get involved more with the product and the product direction. So when you, when you do the M&A side, you create a strategic plan of what you want to do with the acquisition. What are your goals? What would you like to see happen? And then you walk away because you have to move on to the next and someone else has to pick it up. And so Moving into strategic advisor role gives me a a little bit more flexibility to help on the M&A side, but also kind of talk to our product leaders and, you know, kind of bring those insights that I've heard from customers back to the company. Like, where should we be going? What do we need to be building? What features are really important? So I think I, to some extent, I like I love being an entrepreneur and I love building. And when you're buying, there is a part of that that is building, you're building relationships, you're building the strategy around what you want to acquire, but kind of miss building things and being a little bit more involved on the product side. And so I thought like, I'm not ready to totally not be working with Latera. And like, I think we have a lot of things we still want to accomplish. So I didn't want to just like walk away, but I wanted to, I figured, you know, I could take some time to like, kind of figure out what I want to do next. What do I want to build next? And also continue with the goals that I had set out and wanting to achieve with Latera. So they're amazing in giving like kind of the best of both worlds. So I can continue doing things that I'm very passionate about and I can be at a value add to them while also being able to, I have to go to a parent-only cello class today because my eight-year-old decided she wanted to play the cello. So Barbara and I, her cello, are going to go to class tonight. So those are things that I don't always, wouldn't always have gotten to do. And so it's kind of a, it's great.
0: That's wonderful. You've got the opportunity to strike a different work-life balance, but you speak very passionately about sort of the opportunity still at Latera and to be more involved in product How have you built guardrails? And I ask this really for other people that may be struggling with the same thing. Okay, there's a path here, but that tendency is to get pulled back into, let's talk to Haley. She's really good. She really knows what we're doing. Oh, that's a really cool project. You know, there's that incremental sort of return to craziness. How are you going to guard against that? And what advice would you give other people that are trying to do the same thing?
1: Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's a really good point. It's one that like, you know, when I had friends in legal that were like, do I go to a part-time? I'm like part-time in professional services or like lower hours in professional services is a joke to some extent, because there are, it's so hard to have guardrails. You're like, if you say I'm, I'm not going to work on Fridays, like good luck, you will work on Fridays and you'll just get paid less. And so that's like, we've never quite figured that out. Like what that means to have guardrails. This is a little easier because I'm not day-to-day in the business. And so so we kind of set more meetings. We have a more scheduled time frame. So there's a certain amount of hours that I've agreed to a certain set of things. So Sherelle's amazing. So we just mapped it out. She was like, let's make it so there's it's not confusing. So Sherelle's the new CEO of Latera. And she's honestly unbelievable in terms of like operational excellence and really taking the business forward. But she's like, let's put it in writing. I was like, wow, it's like, you're almost like a lawyer. She was like, "Like, let's bucket it out, like every single thing. And so that we're agreed, like there's no ambiguity, there's no, you know, and then if you agree to do, then there's certain things where I'm like, yeah, I'll stay and help on this or I'll do this meeting or whatever. But it was really kind of thought through and so it's like kind of built in guardrails and they're honestly very respectful of that. And so they'll ask me like, hey, is this okay? Like, can you help on this? And then I've gotten good to be like, yeah, you know, this is this is okay, this is maybe not. It's hard because I want to help out. There's probably more times where I want to help than they're like trying to ask me. That's
0: a typical dynamic though where people people want to say yes, particularly if it's work they enjoy doing, and it's hard to say no, isn't it?
1: Yeah. It's hard to say no. And then, but uh, on the other side, like I am making sure that like I have, like I'm doing the stuff that I want to do with the girls. And then I, I, I do mentor a couple other women in the legal industry through mentorship programs. And then, you know, it's like I've gotten to know a lot of the other startup CEOs. And so I'll get calls from some of them, you know, and so I found that I I've had a friend that joked that I work a lot for someone who doesn't work full time. <laughs> and so... I'm figuring it out. I'm not, I will not say I'm not good at it, but like when I, I told someone like the number of hours per and I, they're like, Oh, per day. And I was like, per month, and like, it was just like a joke. Like, cause they're like, well, Haley, like, I mean, you work an insane amount in a day. And I was like, all right, easy everyone. But I get it. I get it. I worked a lot.
0: It's got to be a bit of uh, of adjustment to not working, but enjoying the, enjoying the kids and enjoying the, the life.
1: Yeah, it is. It's a definite adjustment. Is it, you know, it's interesting. I've talked to a number of other startup CEO founders. So a lot of times the startup, you know, when you sell the startup, you'll do transition time for like six months and then a lot of CEOs will take a like a sabbatical then. And so I've talked to a number of different CEOs that I've either Worked it through the acquisitions we've done, or that I've known through all of this, and they've all taken time like afterwards. And I just like steamrolled right on, it. and I'm like, I go from the, I go from thing to thing, and I'm like, let's keep going. Let's we did the recap, okay, let's do it again, like. And so it was interesting to start to hear, like when I said that I was doing this, I heard from so many people who've done it that I didn't realize that they'd taken a sabbatical, and I think that's the thing. And You know, it's like one of the I, I, you know, sometimes you get a little nervous about what you're going to talk about. But I'm like, honestly, like we should talk about it more because more people do it than I think people realize. And they just are doing it between startups. And so you're not paying as much attention to how long they stayed at the company that acquired them or how long before they move to something else. Because you expect that startups are in stealth for a while and whatnot. And so I think there's a lot more people that do it. And like the feedback they've given on me is to take longer than I think I'm, I was going to take. And. And so I've gotten a lot of really interesting conversations around that, about people that have done it, the value that they've gotten out of it, how it helped them to do their next thing. And so I think that's exciting. But I hope we talk about it more because I think it's important. I think it can like, I'd rather people stay in the industry and take a little time to themselves than leave and try to figure out something else because they can't imagine how they're going to continue
0: it is an important discussion to have. And you're right. The talent we've lost consistently over generations has been just really detrimental to the profession itself. Haley, I know uh, we've run over our time. I appreciate you taking the time and we're looking forward to seeing what you do next, which I know is in stealth mode. I know. You notice I was good. I didn't even ask you.
1: (laughs) I appreciate it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for your time and good luck.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.